Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and I'll be reading for us from verse 26 through to verse 38. Let's hear God's Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And uh, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. I suppose at this time of the year we all think of various uh, family traditions or patterns of life that we tend to have in our own families. Uh, When I was growing up, I'm the youngest of uh, three boys, um, each of us in one way or another found a way to surprise our parents. I remember uh, the the middle uh, boy of the three, uh, when he uh, was in Israel for a year, came back with a rather large beard and somewhat surprised our, our parents. Uh, when I was uh, in Canada, I lived in Canada for a year, I decided to, to come back with an even larger beard and really um, uh, surprised uh, our parents. Um, around Christmas, I was away and I decided to do something similar. I believe it was Christmas Eve and I, I, I was away in another country and I didn't tell my parents I was coming home and uh, I decided I would just show up. And so I showed up on Christmas Eve knocked on the door, rang the doorbell. My mother answered and saw me standing there, and I think she almost had a heart attack. Well, I suppose Mary at least got an announcement. Uh, This annunciation, the famous story of the virgin birth, is one that has been a difficulty for many people. And yet, once we 
here, the way Luke is telling the story, uh, we can believe uh, in the truth of what is being said here. I think it was George Orwell who said of H.G. Wells that he was too sane to understand the modern world. It's a rather wonderful phrase, isn't it, that H.G. Wells was too sane to understand the modern world. Somewhat similarly, it is often felt that in order to believe in the virgin birth, you have to somehow be a person of limited rationality or intellectual sophistication or scientific awareness, but actually the reverse is the case. If we are truly sane, uh, we will believe this uh, Christmas story. And so what we have uh, for us this morning is three words about the virgin birth. First, uh, there is a word about Jesus, then there is a word about God, and then finally a word about Mary. So first, a word about Jesus. Of course, this is given to us by the angel's announcement, summarized uh, by the name uh, that he tells Mary to call uh, the baby. This is verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, for those of us who've been around church circles for a while or are familiar uh, with some of these uh, well-known aspects of the Christmas story, we will probably be aware that the name Jesus is an anglicized version of a Greek name, which itself is a Greek version of a Hebrew name, which is Yeshua. And Yeshua means God saves. God saves. So the word about Jesus is that he is God saves. He is God the Savior. And I think that whole theological weight is carried in his name that uh, is being given to, uh, uh, given to him now as, as the angel tells Mary to call him. And specifically in the story as Luke tells it. So Luke is telling a story, he's giving us an orderly account that we might have certainty about salvation and then with that certainty about salvation then Take the message to all nations. And salvation is a key theme, therefore, uh, for Luke as he tells this story. And here is Jesus, namely God saves. And this theme about salvation and who Jesus is is developed um, throughout uh, Luke's gospel. Let me just give you a couple of highlights. Uh, Verse uh, 47 of chapter 1. If you look with me there in your Bibles, you'll see uh, Mary when she sings. What does she sing? Uh, Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in who? God, my Savior. Uh, She's rejoicing in Jesus as the God Savior. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That is 
the uh, intention, I think, that Luke wants us to understand in those, in those words. Somewhat similarly, if you look on to Zechariah's um, prophecy, uh, you'll see that there's this theme of salvation there too. Uh, verse uh, 69 of chapter 1. What does he say? He says that God has raised up a horn of what? Salvation. Or verse 71, that we should be what? Saved uh, from, our, from our enemies. Uh, verse uh, 74, that we being delivered, or that's another word for saved, delivered from the hand of our enemies. Or uh, verse uh, uh, 77, to give knowledge of what? Salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. All this theme of salvation, this word about Jesus, God, the Savior. And uh, if we had time, we could see how Luke develops this through his gospel. Um, you might like afterwards to look particularly at chapters 7 and 8, which has an ongoing theme of the greatness of the salvation that comes through Jesus, God the Savior. And uh, if you do look there, you might like to know that the word heal there, I think, is deliberately chosen by Luke to be the word that also means save. And so um, when the centurion uh, speaks uh, to Jesus, he asks him to come and save uh, his servant. And the same in uh, verse 50 and uh, chapter 8, verse 12 and elsewhere, this theme about salvation. Jesus is God the Savior. Um, and as he uh, himself explains what that means, uh, he does so at the beginning of his ministry in chapter 4, this famous manifesto of the Savior, when he goes to the synagogue he unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. This is chapter 4, verse 17. And then he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's the uh, saving uh, good news, of course, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as uh, he then uh, rolls up the scroll and everyone looks at him, he says, today uh, these words from the prophet are fulfilled in your hearing. The background to Luke is always the Old Testament and Jesus saying all this promise that was given to Isaiah is now fulfilled in Jesus's and his, his ministry and his preaching. This proclaiming good news, this message of salvation, specifically to the poor. Now, we don't have time to get into all this, but of course the background to the word poor is the background to how Isaiah uses that word poor. And the poor in Isaiah are very specifically those who are under God's wrath as sinners because of their idolatrous rebellion against God and are therefore experiencing the suffering that comes from that rebellion in specifically under the hands of uh, the Babylonian Empire. That's the poor. Sinners in rebellion against God experiencing the suffering that comes 
as a result of his wrath on sinners' rebellion. And Jesus, God the Savior, has come to be the Savior uh, for, uh, for sinners. And uh, that's why, of course, Jesus prioritizes preaching because there's a message of salvation that must be proclaimed. So this is the end of chapter 4, verse 43. Uh, Jesus there said to them, this is his prioritization of uh, the message of salvation because he, this word about Jesus, he is God the Savior. And so the message about salvation must be prioritized. Verse 43, chapter 4, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. So preaching is not a minority report in Christianity. Preaching is the very heart, the very purpose that Jesus himself says was why he came. Why? Because he is God the Savior. And therefore that message of salvation must be proclaimed. So all that is in miniature, then explained uh, in a larger way, of course, throughout the rest of the New Testament, but in particular uh, in, uh, in, Luke's, in Luke's gospel. But the angel certainly doesn't only uh, tell Mary to give him this name. He also says, uh, verse 32 of chapter 1, Jesus will be great. Uh, he will be called Son of the Most High. Uh, he will be on the throne of his father David. He's the fulfillment of the promises of the Davidic kingdom. Where is the Davidic kingdom fulfilled? In Jesus. That's where it's fulfilled. The throne of his father David is in Jesus. He is given that throne. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a specific fulfillment of the promise given to David by God. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7, when God says to him that your kingdom and your uh, inheritors of your kingdom, that kingdom will never end. Well, of course, Solomon's kingdom, the kingdom, the physical kingdom, did end. Where is that fulfilled? The angel says it's fulfilled in this, this baby, Jesus. So a word about Jesus, God the Savior, fully man, fully God, the Son of God. And when uh, Mary um, inquires, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin, uh, she doesn't, unlike Zechariah, and we'll get to Mary in just a moment, she's not doubting the angel's word. She's interested in how it can happen. And so the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, which means son of God. Jesus is God's son. The most high. Now, I um, have been intrigued to discover that uh, the theological false teaching of Unitarianism, which is the doctrine that Jesus is not God, uh, but that we still accept his moral example. That uh, uh, teaching, which uh, had its day uh, some while ago, is actually making something of a return in some circles. 
But here we have from the angel a very clear enunciation that Jesus is son of the Most High, he's son of God, his kingdom will never end. Uh, He is God, the Savior. And that idea of Unitarianism, which seems uh, so sophisticated to some people, I think, and seems so inclusive, uh, we're, we're not going to exclude people who don't accept that Jesus is God. It seems so kind and um, cultured is actually ironically exactly not that. It's very narrow and uh, very few people have ever been able to accept it because it isn't the teaching of the Bible, very obviously. The old joke about Unitarianism is that uh, because of its original popularity in the, uh, in the New England area of America, the old joke about Unitarianism is that Unitarians believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man in the neighborhood of Boston. And not much further than that. Whereas this word about Jesus has gone all around the globe. So first of all, we had a word about Jesus. Second, we have a word about God. Uh, This is uh, verse 37. The angel says, For nothing will be impossible with God. This word about God defeats doubt about the virgin birth at three levels. First and most obviously, it defeats doubt about the virgin birth because of its claim about who God is in his nature. Nothing will be impossible with who? With God. So people who doubt the virgin birth, thinking they are being very sophisticated, um, even sophisticated about modern science, are really not at all being sophisticated about modern science, but actually being very unsophisticated about theology about who God is. After all, there's never been any confusion about the fact that no one has ever thought that virgin births are possible for people. That's why Mary says, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin, or literally since I have not known a man? Very specific. How can this be? The answer is it cannot be by human nature. It is impossible. No one's ever been confused about that. You don't need to be a sophisticated scientist to know that. You don't need to be born in the 21st century to know that. They knew that. Mary knew that. Everyone has known that. But if you doubt the virgin birth, um, really you're being unsophisticated about theology. Who is it not impossible for? Answer, God. Why? Because of the nature of who God is. God is almighty. He is all mighty. 
God can do anything. He has all power. There is nothing that is impossible with God. So if we are doubting the virgin birth, really what we are doubting is who God is. Well, that's the first level, and it's uh, fairly obvious, but worth underlining. Second level, a little less obviously, um, is to do with the philosophy of what is being taught here, or if you want a, a, a different word, the, the undergirding theology. Uh, the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God, and the same a word that is used for no thing is picked up by Mary when she replies, let it be to me according to your word or your thing, let it be to me according to your thing or verse 37, for no word will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God, no word will be impossible with God. Theologically then, at an undergirding level, uh, this defeats, this word about God defeats doubt about the virgin birth. Why? Because Christians believe that God constantly upholds the whole universe by the power of his word. Uh, We do not think, and there's massive ongoing confusion in Christian subculture about this. We do not think that God does miracles all the time. Now, of course, it depends what you mean by miracle. If by saying God does miracles all the time, we mean that God is constantly intervening into the lives of his children to bless them and help them, then certainly he does do that. Praise him. If we mean by saying that God does miracles all the time, we mean that he answers prayer that he's a loving God and gives of his presence and of his, yes, intervention in our lives providentially over and over and over again. Yes, he does. In that sense, yes, of course, he does miracles all the time. The testimony of Scripture, the testimony of Christians down through the ages is that God intervenes for his people over and over again. Praise him. But if by saying that God does miracles all the time, we're using the word miracle more strictly, then even the Bible does not say that God does miracles all the time. In fact, in the Bible, miracles are relatively rare. They tend to cluster around the great saving events, around uh, the, uh, the exodus when uh, God, through uh, Moses, brought his people out of Egypt. There's a cluster of miracles. Um, with, um, early with Abraham uh, and, uh, the, as we'll see, the birth uh, of Isaac to Sarah. Uh, with Elijah and Elisha, who are restoring the Mosaic message and its power to God's people. There's a cluster of miracles. And of course, with Jesus, who is God the Savior, there's a cluster of miracles. And with his apostles, there's a cluster of miracles. I believe God still does do miracles in that sense today. But they're rare. Even the Bible, they are rare. So when we say that we believe in the virgin birth, because, uh, look at that, just dropped a 
Maybe I'll put that back. When we say we believe in the virgin birth because God is a God of miracles, what we're not saying is we believe that God can do anything all the time and upend the natural order of the universe. What we believe theologically is that God is constantly upholding the entire universe by the power of his word. And therefore, what we call in science the the laws of nature are an expression of God's law, of his orderly upholding of the universe. And here comes a new word. If God is theologically speaking, as we believe, constantly upholding every part of the universe by the power of his word all the time, an expression of his orderly nature, why is it so hard to believe that the divine programmer of the universe at this moment in time wrote in a new piece of code. Why is it so hard to believe that he wrote in a new word, spoke a new word? He is the God of the impossible, and he upholds the whole universe by the power of his word, and everything that we experience in our ordered world is an expression of his upholding power. And here, He writes in a new piece of code. He speaks a new word. But then uh, most, um, not only uh, sort of an obvious way about God, who he is, is the God uh, for whom nothing is impossible, and theologically, because God upholds all by the power of his word, this word then that is spoken. Not only that, there's also a biblical textual reason for it. And I think Mary, as a, uh, as a um, pious Jew, would have certainly picked this up. When the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God, the angel is quoting from the Bible. You come with me back to Genesis chapter 18, you'll see this. Genesis chapter 18 there is a very well-known for Jews precursor to this moment when uh, God is um, speaking to Abraham and uh, confirming what he has promised that Abraham and Sarah, their advanced old age, uh, would have a child. Chapter 18, verse 14, God says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or as that is uh, expressed by the angel, nothing is impossible for God. Surely Mary would have picked that up. Mary, this precursor of uh, the promise is now being fulfilled in you. Not only that, the whole of the story of the Old Testament, which is the background to Luke's gospel, is being fulfilled uh, at, this, at this moment. Uh, I don't know whether all this was in Mary's mind, but it should be in our mind when we read uh, Luke's, uh, Luke's uh, gospel. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, God has a pre-saving, pre-gospel, early gospel promise. 
chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There you are, Eve. One day from you will come a seed who is the Savior, who will crush the works of the evil one. And Mary, that day has come. I think actually there was ongoing hope in the Old Testament that day would come substantially earlier. I think you can even sense an echo of it in chapter 4. When Eve is uh, bearing Cain, ironically she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She's echoing the promise that one day there will be a seed that comes from woman who will be the savior. Could it be this, this boy? Eve thought with Cain, no. Is it Abraham? No. Is it Moses? No. Is it David? No. Is it David's son? No. Who is it? Mary, remember the whole story. Nothing will be impossible for God. That moment, so long promised, has now arrived. What a word about God. Well, the third of our uh, words about the virgin birth, we have a word about Mary. Uh, Look at verse uh, 38. So much confusion in Christian circles, I think even evangelical Christian circles, which is astonishing to me, but because we're meant to be Bible people. How does Mary describe who she is? What did she say? Verse 38, behold, look, listen, here is who I am, you Bible people. Listen carefully, Luke says. Who is Mary? Servant of the Lord. That's what we should call Mary, a servant of the Lord. (laughs) What is more, uh, what did she say? Let it be to me according to your word. So this word about Mary is she's a person of the word. She loves the word. She believes the word. She's a a word kind of person. She loves the speaking of God through his word. She's a servant of the Lord and therefore someone who believes the word. That's who Mary is. Now, of course, the angel does say other things about Mary as well. Um, That's how Mary describes herself. The angel says other things about Mary. Verse 28 He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. O favored one, or O graced one, recipient of grace, which of course means that Mary uh, was a sinner. Must mean that. Grace, by definition, means God's unmerited favor. The fact that she'd been graced means that she needed grace. That's thinking biblically, not sacramentally or liturgically. She's a recipient of grace, which means she needed to receive grace. 
That's why she doesn't need to be afraid, even though she's a sinner encountering the angel Gabriel. Why? She's been graced. The Apostle Paul uh, tells us that as Christians, it is by grace we've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, but the gift of God, so that no one can boast. That's grace. God's unmerited favor to Mary and to anyone who believes uh, in God and in Jesus, in the word about Jesus, God the Savior. Greetings, O graced one, sinner saved by grace. Of course, the word greetings is uh, the word from which uh, we get the Ave uh, Maria. Ave is just the Latin translation of uh, this word uh, greetings or hail. And, and the Latin uh, Ave simply means, uh, it's, a, it's a fine translation of the Greek. They both just simply mean in English greetings. That's all it means. The angel was saying to Gabriel, Hello, Mary. That's it. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. If we sing that, that's what we're singing. Hello, Mary. Greetings. And what does she say about herself again? I am the servant of the Lord. Servant of God, and who is she? She's the kind of person. This is her model and example to us, which, of course, there is. Amazing, especially when you compare her to Zechariah, who's the old priest who should have known better and couldn't believe. Mary did believe. She couldn't figure out how it was going to happen. Who could? Only God could do it. But then having heard that word about God... With the word about Jesus, then Mary says, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So to listen to the word about Mary is to take us to the word about God and take us to the word about Jesus as God the Savior. So a word about Mary, a word about God, and a word about Jesus. Now, why is this important for us at Christmas? Well, as we sung earlier, and we'll no doubt repeatedly sing, Christmas time, we think of the darkness of midwinter, but of course, the light and the warmth of the gospel. And when we elevate the truth of God the Savior, we therefore have a powerful shining light that then can contrast with any darkness we might feel with this uh, word, this truth. Let it defeat our doubts. Let it defeat our darkness. Let it defeat our idols, our idolatry. I don't know whether any of you have realized, but there's been a soccer tournament going on uh, these days. And there's a joke about uh, two of the big stars on the world stage, Ronaldo and Messi. Ronaldo, um, very sadly for him, has been knocked out of the tournament, but Messi is still in. Anyway, there's a joke about uh, the two of them, um, which goes like this. Ronaldo is meant to have said, I am God's gift uh, to, uh, to football, to soccer. To which Messi is meant to have replied, I sent no one. 
While I doubt any of you have idolatry of sports stars, whether whichever kind of football, but we do have other idolatries, don't we? Other saviors, money, family. Here we have in the text, lifted up to us, a word that then should not only balance these difficulties, but brightly shine light into our darkness and give us salvation, safety. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this uh, story. We pray, Lord, that we would receive your uh, word and have that light shine in our darkness so that we might have salvation. Help us, Lord, not to doubt, but believe, to be your servants and people of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.